0: Thanks for tuning in to the Democracy Forum. At final count, there will be eight ballot questions for us to vote on November 7th. How did the questions make it to the ballot? The answers are coming up on today's Democracy Forum, a rebroadcast of April's show. Ballot questions, whose initiatives are they and what is the process? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fourth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We feature topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program was a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about ballot questions. Whose initiatives are they? We'll talk about the citizen initiative process in Maine, the sheer number of them, the money behind them, their strengths and shortcomings, and um, whether they're homegrown, people in Maine or from away. We'll talk about how the initiative process works and how it's working for Maine. You know, asking the question, can an ordinary citizen still run a ballot question? We'll get started here in a moment. This show was pre-recorded on April 6th. Send your comments to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Anne Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today. Let me introduce our guests. Um, Shanna Bellows is the Maine Secretary of State. Her office is the one that administers these questions in Maine. Make sure they get from petition to ballot. Welcome, Shanna.
1: Thank you. Hello.
0: And Todd Donovan is a professor of political science at Western Washington University. Todd wrote an important book, which you'll see on our website if you look about the citizen initiative process. And welcome, Todd.
2: Thanks for having
0: me. Um, so let's get started and let's start with the basics. Shanna, just quickly, um, what are the different kinds of ballot questions in Maine? And again, just briefly, what is the process for each of them to get on the ballot here?
1: So in Maine we have a citizen initiative process, also called a referendum. It's a constitutionally protected process. So Mainers can bring legislation straight to fellow Mainers for a vote. Um, to make that happen, uh, a group of Mainers proposes a question, and they actually can draft their own legislation. They bring that to our office. We issue them uh, petition forms, and then they collect signatures, uh, tens of thousands of signatures from other Mainers, Uh, That tally is based on 10% of the previous gubernatorial uh, election votes cast. And then once they have collected those signatures, they have an 18-month window to do so. Uh, Signatures are valid for up to a year. It's a two-step process. They bring those petition forms to their local municipalities to have their local clerks verify that the voters that have signed are, in fact, registered voters of those municipalities and then those petition forms come to my office, and we review all the forms very carefully um, and evaluate whether the petition or citizen initiative has in fact qualified for the ballot. And Then we deliver it to the legislature, and the legislature can actually pass it. If they think it's a good idea, they can uh, pass it straight into law. Um, but generally, the legislature actually uh, takes no action. And that means that the question then automatically goes uh, to the following election and, and on the ballot. The second ty- type of citizen initiative uh, is one that I've actually been part of multiple times. And it's if, a, if the legislature passes a law that the citizenry finds objectionable, they can embark on what's called a people's veto. The timeline is much shorter uh, but again, they collect uh, signatures to stop the law from going into effect. Um, so it's a bit simpler. They they're not writing new legislation; they're simply objecting to the law that the legislature passed. Uh, and then that law is suspended for the duration of the people's veto. And then uh, voters have an opportunity to make their own determination on the ballot. So those are two types of referendum processes in our state uh, that really. I think, improve and make robust our citizen democracy here in our state.
0: Now, people will see bond questions on the ballot. Citizens don't have anything to do with that. The legislature does those, right?
1: That's right. So citizens do not initiate constitutional amendments or bonds. Those are are initiated in the legislature, and then the legislature sends them out to the voters for approval.
0: Todd, is that different in other states? I know some states can... Um, have the initiative process apply to constitutional amendments, can't they?
2: Yeah, it varies a lot. California has constitutional amendments. Some states only allow statutory amendments. There's uh, different rules for the amount of signatures that you need to require, uh, acquire and, and different rules for methods about how you uh, get the signatures. Um, yeah, there's, there is a lot of variation across the states.
0: But ba- basically, it's passing a law, like there's statutory language that goes with this and it's like passing a law, right?
2: Yeah. It's like for the statutory initiative process, for the constitutional initiative process, you're passing a law that could be undoing a state Supreme Court decision. And you're passing a law that's then enshrined into the state constitution that only the voters can change in the future. Um, and that, that's, that's a, that's a different level of, of, uh, changing institutional structures in states. Um, I, I personally am more of a fan of the statutory process that keeps the legislature involved, mm-hmm. either through the indirect initiative or um, and this varies across the states. Once something's been passed by the voters, how soon can the legislature amend it or can the legislature amend it? And th- those rules vary. But yeah, but the constitutional one, that's um, that can really handcuff uh, some states.
0: hmm. T- talk a little bit about um, Shanna. Talk about in Maine, like a couple things. Where's the governor and all this? And B, is the legislature hamstrung in any way from meddling with these once they pass or what happens in Maine?
1: The legislature might have a different idea about a particular proposal initiated by the citizenry. So they could modify the idea, but if they do so, that's called what's, it's what's called a competing measure. And so the original statutory proposal from the citizenry, unless the legislature passes it and it's signed into law by the governor, it will and must go to the ballot once it's been approved uh, by the secretary of state, absent any court challenges from opponents. So the legislature really can't meddle with it unless they have a different suggestion, in which case both proposals go on the ballot as a competing measure, and um, that's that's how it proceeds. But the governor's not involved. No, mm -mm. the governor can't veto something that citizens have initiated. So obviously the governor has the power to veto what the legislature does, but the governor does not have the power to veto uh, what the people do.
0: And then say it passes, the legislature, I mean, it's just a law, right? The legislature could, if they wanted to, just repeal it the next
1: session, right? That has certainly happened. Um, So uh, as recently as 2016, the legislature... Passed a particular tax, um, and uh, they wanted to support increased uh, school funding, and and the legislature uh, promptly repealed uh, the work that had passed in November. So a subsequent legislature uh, can repeal something that the people have done, but they can't interfere with the people's opportunity to vote on that initial question. How
0: does that work in other states, Todd? Do other states have sort of a hands-off period, like?
2: Yeah, Washington State. It's two years. Um, they can maybe amend it with a supermajority in the first two years, but after two years, it's a simple majority. And they have done that, particularly with voter-approved tax measures that um, maybe throw a monkey wrench in the budget because they'll cut taxes or voter-approved measures to increase education funding. We had one of those where there was no no new revenue that came with it. Um, those sorts of things, they're, they're more likely to to amend after a couple of years than, than than other things that voters pass, some state legislatures have had legislative term limits imposed by the initiative process That they have constitutional initiatives um or or even statutory statutory initiatives those a couple of those have been repealed by state legislators um but it's even though they can pretty much get rid of an initiative in some states that voters have approved That being on the ballot and the voters approving, it, particularly if it passes with a a high percentage of the vote, has sent a signal that, you know, we had one here with the license tabs when you register your vehicle, even though the courts rejected it and the legislature could have repealed it, they had to act in some way because 60% of voters had made this statement that they were unhappy with the way that those car tab fees were charged. So even, even you know, there are these indirect effects of signaling, I think, that we got to think of and be above and beyond just, you know, did this pass and did the court strike it down or did this pass and the legislature then repeal it? There's still the message that's been sent.
0: Well, so the obstacles to meddling with it are, I guess, would you say political, Shanna? The people have spoken and that has, deserves your respect or?
1: That's right. Um, I'm glad uh, Professor Roundup mentioned the courts. Of course, the courts could find that a referendum violated the constitution in some way, or um, the rights of some particular group or individual. We're uh, we're seeing right now in Maine uh, there is a lawsuit, an active lawsuit over the issue of the um, CMP corridor, and the people had voted in Maine, um, to stop the the CMP corridor. And now the, one of the companies impacted by that is, has appealed that to the courts. And so we don't know what the court will do. That definitely has influence as well.
0: Todd, in your survey of the landscape, like what are the chances that, uh, legislation, like, I guess when you put one of these initiatives forward, you're, um, responsible for bringing the statutory language forward and when the statutory language doesn't go through the legislative process is it more or less likely to have problems with it like the legislature can pass stuff that has an and or an or or a misplaced comma I mean they can mess up too but like what are the trade-offs when it goes this way versus the other way
2: at least on the west coast California Oregon Washington a, a high proportion of voter approved measures will be challenged in court and successfully challenged in court and with either part of it or all of it being rejected one thing that some of the state courts have been using a lot more aggressively in the last decade is a single subject rule it's applied maybe quite rigorously to a citizen's ballot measure more so than to something that that would come out of the legislature the more aggressively that the courts are saying you know the property tax and some other tax are two subjects you can't put them on the same initiative the more likely it might get to be overthrown. But there's one of the the anti-tax activists here. He had seven initiatives passed, and I think all of them, or six or seven, six of seven were were overturned in part or in whole by the courts. He calls himself a lobbyist for the people, and he's using these things to send signals to the legislature. So whether they are well-crafted, it is something a legislature might do. They're putting this intense public pressure on the legislature to respond, even if the thing is overturned by the court. They're often challenged. And some of the interests behind them have a lot of money to get on the ballot. It's, and their, their opponents have a lot of money. So they litigate even before on the title and summary. They litigate after it's passed on whatever they might find an advantage in.
0: Don't get me started on the money. I want to ask a bunch of questions later about the money. But Shanna, talk about like in Maine, just in your observation, like when these things have mistakes in them, you know, is the legislature likely to be cooperative and fix them or to repeal them? or? And then we get a lot of questions ta- talking about process. Also answer the question, who writes these questions, the ones that appear on the ballot? Because people sometimes find these a little
1: confusing. Well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> the legislation itself is written by the people bringing the referendum question. They draft a proposal and it may be perfect or it may have flaws, uh, that it's really their prerogative. Um, We do uh, provide it to the revisor's office to ensure that it's written in the form of main statute. Uh, So sometimes people are writing something very informally and it does need to be um, placed appropriately in the main statutes. And once that is done, we actually provide it to the petitioners to make sure that it's congruent with what they've proposed. Uh, but they they write the title of their initiative and they write the substance of it. As Secretary of State, uh, my task is to summarize what sometimes is pages of legislation into as simple a question as possible. Um, My obligation is to make sure that it is objective and that it's understandable to the voters. Depending on the subject matter, uh, that can either be very easy and not particularly controversial or very challenging and very controversial. And I I won't go into the details of that. We will have at least four questions on the ballot this November. And there is a process. So I draft a question. I usually have my team here and usually consult with the Office of the Attorney General to make sure that legally we think that it uh, represents the subject matter appropriately. And then issue the draft question. The public has 30 days to provide comments. And on a couple of questions, there have been little or no comments. And then on a couple of questions, there have been dozens, um, in one case, over 100 comments. Wow. So I read all of those comments. I review all of those comments, have a discussion with my civil service team uh, in elections and the office of the attorney general. And, and then uh, have the sole authority to make any changes to the question that I think are appropriate, given the substance of the comments and the feedback. But then the petitioners or the opponents of the petitioners may in fact challenge the question in the court. And in fact, that's happening currently.
0: Um, I would take a quick station break and then I have some, some more questions. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is ballot questions. Whose initiatives are they? Our guests this afternoon are Todd Donovan, professor of political science at Western Washington University, and Shanna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State. Shanna, you mentioned four questions at least. Maybe you just tell the listeners what the four might be this Award. year.
1: There's an act to create the Pine Tree Power Company an act to prohibit campaign spending by foreign governments, an act to require voter approval of certain borrowing, and an act regarding automotive right to repair. I can go into the questions if you want, but those are the 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 broad, short, shortened titles of the four questions.
0: Let's see if we have time to talk more about the questions later. We've got so many process questions here, and I want people to understand how the process works, and then we can come back on the pros and cons of the questions later. But Todd, how did states come to have this right? Like when did it become a thing and why? You know, what was the pressure that birthed? these processes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting if you think about it. between like 1900 and 1920 over a dozen states had their legislatures and their governors give to the people the power to write legislation and basically do a complete end run over the institution of the legislature and it happened, you know, there's social movements during that time that were converging prohibition movements, labor movements, um suffrage movement, so different groups that had interests in getting their goals forward that they weren't getting through the legislature. And and then some states, um, you had progressive wings of both the Democratic and Republican Party getting seats in the legislature, free silver Republicans. Um, you had progressive um, governors, populist governors being elected. Some legislatures out West had, you know, the populist party was the second strongest party in some places, you know, the, the strongest party. So the combination of you know that political force in that window of time getting enough traction in the legislature, but also then you know the governors had to sign this this stuff off. It's hard, it, it, and there's been states since 1920 that have adopted um, initiative and referendum, but they've been much more watered down than the the version that you see that came out of the 1900 uh, to, to 1920. So it's it, it, and it, we've kind of hit a ceiling. There aren't there aren't very many states that are that have their legislators today saying, like, let's give the people this power.
0: And Maine was in that group, like early 20th century, right, Jenna? 1908. And, and because it
1: was a constitutional amendment. So the Citizens Initiative and People's Veto Process are written into the Maine constitution. So it was a constitutional amendment uh, that went out to the voters for approval in 1908.
0: So it was proposed by the legislature and ratified by. So this was really legislatures giving this right to the people during a time of political foment. Is that fair, Todd?
2: Yeah. It's hard to imagine that happening. Now, you know, the legislative term limit movement of the nineteen nineties, that was citizens using the initiative process to tell legislators you can only serve eight years or twelve years. There was only one state where the legislature said, Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna limit our terms. So this was, you know, you had over a dozen states doing this pretty dramatic change in their political institutions through the people who had, you know, got traction in the legislature.
0: Well, in fact, I've sort of been reading up on this, getting ready for the show, and a lot of states are now trying to curtail those powers. I mean, what's that all about? There's been a lot of pushback in states trying to take it back.
2: Yeah, and that's been going on for decades, that um, the party out of power generally likes the initiative process because they can advance and their allies can advance um, goals that they wouldn't be able to get through the legislation. Through the legislature. So more recently, there's been in conservative states, you've seen minimum wage laws passed, Medicaid expansion passed, uh, protection on abortion access passed. And in some of those states, then the, the party in power is thinking, well, maybe the signature requirements are too easy, or maybe we should have higher thresholds of, of voter approval to get these things to pass. And so it, it's something that ebbs and flows over time, but the, you know, actually getting rid of The um, process—that's something we haven't seen.
0: So nobody has actually successfully taken it away.
2: No, it's been made harder to use in some states. Um,
0: Shanna, what are your observations about the legislative climate about this in Maine? I think we've seen a few bills along the lines that Todd says, trying to make it harder, more signatures, trying to make it more difficult, even at the local level. Are legislators chafing? Do you
1: think in Maine? I think. There's always a push pull, right, um, between the legislature and activists. And, you know, we're seeing, for example, uh, they're currently, uh, folks are gathering signatures for an act to enact the Paid Family and Medical Leave Insurance Act, right? People want paid family medical leave. And at the same time, there's pressure in the legislature uh, to have the legislature act instead. And so I think. For some, and and just like the professor said, probably there are some people who would like to see an easier initiative process and see more things move more quickly to the ballot. And there are others um, who would like to see it made more difficult. And I'm not sure that it aligns cleanly with political ideology. I don't believe that the initiative process is particularly partisan. Um, For example, the paid family medical leave tends to be backed by some of the more progressive groups uh, and more liberal allies. There's also um, a petition being circulated right now that would create a very strict voter identification at the polls law being brought by conservative activists. I think it's a mix. uh, And I, you know, in my work as head of the ACLU prior to entering into elected office, uh, was very involved with marriage equality and that was something that when the legislature passed marriage equality it was overturned by people's veto. So those of us who were supporting marriage equality decided to move forward with a proactive citizens referendum in 2012. And that was very successful. Mm-hmm. I was also co-chair of people's veto on, you know, to stop the legislature from repealing same day voter registration uh, back when the page was coming.
0: Yeah, I remember it well. I've read, you know, some scholars say that The citizen initiative process reduces confidence and trust in the legislature. Certainly, I've heard some, like, if you are a representative, you tend to stand up for representative government. If you think representative government is not working, you're more for direct democracy. Todd, what are the arguments here about representative democracy versus direct
2: democracy? I'll start with the trust thing. Um, okay. The, yeah, the original the advocates back in the progressive era were saying that um, this would make the initiative and the threat of the initiative, not just the use of it, would make elected officials more responsive to the public and um, lead to more responsible policy. Because the, the, the and legislatures back then were much more captured by interest, moneyed interests, um, much less professional, much less regulation on, on, on how they acted. Than they are today, so that, that you know this would then through the through making policy more responsive to public opinion, make people more trusting, and um, and there's a bit there's a big argument out there. Some of my colleagues made. I guess I've, I've done some of this literature that we see higher turnout when we have more initiatives, and does that then a sign of more voter engagement? Um, but a former student of mine has kind of taken on some of that work, and he showed that initiatives maybe there's so many of them that are anti-government, anti-tax, anti-legislature, like the term limit stuff, that they might correspond with or increase distrust in the legislature. So even though, and we know empirically that states with the initiative process, they do have policies, there's some evidence of this, it's not overwhelming, they do have policies that are closer to what where public opinion is in that state than, say, a state that doesn't have the initiative process. That, and that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how responsive you want government to be to popular majorities. But, yeah, so it's, it's – it's I guess it depends how you define representation and responsiveness.
0: Mm-hmm. What are the arguments for direct democracy? Do you, well, responsiveness, I guess you kind of answer that.
2: The, yeah, the – and you, know, you could the argument a hundred years ago was that the legislatures were so removed from public scrutiny and, and so unregulated in, you know, what would now be illegal in terms of who could give them money and do favors for them, that you needed this end run around, the the legislature. Fast forward a hundred years later, we have much more professionalized, regulated legislatures with public disclosure rules and all these things. Do we still need it as much as we did back then? Um so I, I think now it's you know the it's the same argument as it's been. Is this is cliche? Is like the initiative is the gun behind the door that makes the legislature responsive, or it's the bit in the mouth of the horse? And I guess the horse is the legislature, and the people are riding the horse, <laughs> so that you know if you 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 can get things like legalization of marijuana. That's not really a partisan ideological issue, but you know public opinion has been favoring that for a lot long, much quicker than legislatures would respond and, and act for whatever reasons. Um, so if that's the kind of politics and, and, and government you want, you're more likely to get that with, with the initiative. Um, normatively, it's you know it's a, it's a judgment call about is that a good thing because it's all we have a history of. The initiative process has also been really good at advancing laws that have not been kind to minorities, particularly before, you know in terms of the the marriage uh, bans in the early 2000s, um, reinforcing housing segregation, anti-immigrant policies. Um, so because that's where public opinion might have been, you're going to use the initiative process that way as well. So it, it's more responsive, for better, for worse. Do
1: you want to comment on that, Shannon, I? I think an advantage of the citizen initiative process is that connection to community. And, it, you know, you can get people really excited about coalescing around an idea and bringing it forward. The disadvantage, of course, is that it can be a very blunt instrument and, and. Absent the public hearing process that the Maine legislature has, for example, and the amendment process that the Maine legislature has, you lose that potential for edits and negotiations among differing interests that often happens in our legislature. Now, one thing that I think is really unique about Maine is that I love is that every bill in Maine gets a public hearing, every bill in Maine gets committee vote, and every bill in Maine moves to the floor for floor votes in one form or another. There are lots of states where leadership controls which bills even get a public hearing, uh, much less a committee vote or floor votes. And so I think Maine has a variety of structures, not just the initiative process, that make it very responsive to people.
0: Todd, you talked about what question is on the ballot can really shape voter turnout. And I know, Shani, we've seen a few of these in Maine, you know, the bear baiting bill, the universal background checks bill, the marijuana bill that you just talked about, you know, where turnout really shifted because of which question was on the ballot. I'm sure that happens, Todd, but I'm also wondering if it hasn't. Um, If that aspect of the initiative process hasn't been used to put questions on the ballot in order to drive turnout to affect candidate outcomes.
2: Yeah. And there's I mean, I've known people who've worked as consultants on some of these campaigns and and people and both political parties have stories to tell about. Doing focus group work and public opinion polls to find like what is the issue that might get our people out this year, and Democrats for a while settled in on minimum wage things. Uh, Republicans maybe find other issues. So it's not just about what's one thing that gets everybody to turn out more. Um, there are some groups that are probably being strategic about what's the issue that we can get our group to turn out more. But it, but there's in the academic research, um, the kind of social moral values questions can often be things that are really big at driving turn out. It's not just that people get more engaged and vote when these things are out. They do information searches on these issues that they wouldn't maybe otherwise be doing if it wasn't on the ballot. So there's, there's some folks that argue that there's an educative effect of initiatives. That it's not just getting people to the polls, but they're going on Google and especially in states where you vote by mail, you know, they've got time to sit there with the pamphlet and, and read the arguments. They do the research. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't happen if you don't have the initiative process. People are just looking at party labels and, and voting those.
0: So it kind of contributes to a deliberative process for the voters. That's interesting.
2: And it, it depends how we define deliberative. Yes. Okay. So some of my colleagues would say that's not deliberation. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's. I mean, it's more much more so than just voting in a U.S. Congress election where you've got a Democrat against a Republican.
0: Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on weru This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Shanna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State, and Todd Donovan, Professor of Political Science at Western Washington University. Our topic today is ballot questions. Whose initiatives are they? This show is pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So as we ask the question, whose initiatives are they? Um, it leads us right to the money. And we've certainly seen some questions in Maine going back a couple of years where, you know, outside interests with big money bought their way onto the ballot. Is it too expensive? for ordinary people to do it anymore in Maine, Sheta?
1: I don't think so. I think that if you have a group of committed people who are passionate about an issue, uh, you can do the work of going door-to-door in your neighborhood or sitting at the polls on election days. We have very permissive laws and policies about who can be at the polls on election day gathering signatures. And so I think we've seen a lot of successful initiatives that have not arisen out of big money. I will say there is a trend of hiring signature gatherers. Um, In fact, uh, the Secretary of State, prior to me, not Dunlap, um, our office was sued uh, to allow um, people who are not registered voters in Maine to gather signatures and the courts, in fact, found that we were required to permit people who are not um, even Maine residents. Uh, to collect signatures. And so there definitely have been other initiatives where you see uh, very well-funded efforts of professional signature gatherers coming in from outside of the state uh, to place a question on the ballot. I think that's part of democracy too, right? Um, but I love to see big money out of politics. I'd love to I mean, he does have very wonderful clean election laws um, that make it easier for people who are not personally wealthy or don't know wealthy people to run for the legislature. But it's it's been challenging, especially given where the courts are federally uh, to put in place really stringent campaign finance restrictions on spending.
0: So, Todd, why can't we stop the money on these ballot questions
2: it's a First Amendment right to speech, according to the federal courts, even before the Citizens United case that said corporations and unions could spend unlimited amounts of money uh independent of campaigns. In the 1970s, they had said for ballot initiatives, whether you're paying petitioners or whether you're communicating directly to the voters with commercials, that is speech there's no perception of corruption it's not like a giving money to an elected official you're just communicating directly with the voter so it has made it really hard to put any limits on this but i and actually I, I really envy the the description of maine because in, in most states at uh, west we don't have anything that gets on the ballot without paid petitioners and even in, in washington state we didn't nothing got on the ballot in the last election cycle because the economy was so heated it was hard for groups the aclu was trying to qualify something and and they had petitioners they could pay, but other states were paying those. The, the petitioners go around to different states. It's a, it's a you know it's a business, um, and they they could get eighteen dollars a signature for something I heard that. in Florida. We couldn't get it to stick around in Washington. So the you know the reality is that that money is there, and, that, and in a lot of states it's the only way you're going to get on the ballot, and it could cost millions of dollars. But what we do have in terms of like you know what was your title? Whose process is it, or is, are these things homegrown? We have a lot of you know, citizen activist groups, whether it's criminal justice reform or you know legalizing marijuana, um, any sorts of issues, some of the anti-tax issues. They find a wealthy patron to fund their campaign. So there's all these billionaires that are backing initiatives that really have nothing to do with their you know business or their economic things. They're just looking you know, at charter schools, recreational use of marijuana. That they're 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 funding the. Bill for these groups to pay the petitioners to get on the ballot. So, so the citizens groups are still there. They're just they need wealthy um, backers to be able to to get on the ballot.
0: I mean that is the case in Maine. You know the uh, non citizen voting campaign that had some out of state money behind it, right? Even the universal background check that was Bloomberg that was behind that one. The bear baiting one had the SPCA behind it. You know some of these from. Well, and the Scarborough Downs one, you know, that had some family money behind it. So, so, Shanna, talk about do those win when when you sort of buy your way onto the ballot in Maine? Do those campaigns succeed?
1: Not always. So money can't buy votes legally or or, or illegally, really. Right. So we, we have seen the rejection of some of these very well funded efforts because they weren't aligned with Maine values and because we do. We should be so proud. We have some of the highest voter participation in the country. And so we have traditionally very high voter turnout. And so if people bringing in an initiative process aren't successful in getting a message out and in recruiting that popular support, it isn't going to pass. And I will say some of the paid signature gatherers are sloppy uh, or even worse straight or worse. <laughs> Good word for it. So, for example, there was a ridiculous... When I say ridiculous, because it's already you know prohibited um, petition to prohibit non citizens um, from voting. We did not certify that petition, and, and we found you know they were just copying. I don't know if it was a phone book or what it was, but they were just copying random names down on petitions, and and, and that's fraud.
0: What What are you finding in, in other states about this? Like, if big money buys their way onto a, an initiative, do they still pass?
2: No, and actually, the when you get really well-resourced um, economic groups fighting each other about some business regulation thing, voters, <laughs> they, they, they tend to go down at higher rates than other things. And, and there's this one in California recently where I think like the Nevada casinos had their gambling regulations that they were backing and some of the California Indian tribes had theirs and the, the rival tribes had hundreds of millions of dollars were spent and the voters just rejected all of them. So it's, yeah, m- money, I mean, it, it it is effective. You know, we've had citizens groups trying to pass like GMO labeling regulations and the they get outspent 10 to 1, 5 to 1. So the money can be pretty good at defending business interests, um, but maybe not as good as advancing the, those well-resourced interests.
0: Do you think that, The citizen initiative process is more or less susceptible to big money than the legislative process, Todd.
2: I don't, if anything, no difference. Um, In some ways, I think less um, because the voters have a lot of other sources of information than just because you're talking TV commercials. So how how much are the TV commercials really going to be influencing them? And, you know, we've got evidence that people, they use the voters pamphlet, they look at who supports who's for and against things, they do their own research. Um, so that, you know, the money can only move the needle so much. And it's actually after someone called, it said, some of the more worrisome things are when something, some interest group got something on the ballot, and there's absolutely no money spent, you have no information about, it. you don't find out who's backing it, and who's for it and who's against it. But whereas, like, you know, the vast amounts of money in congressional races or presidential races, they're really just focusing on just a narrow part of the electorate in a, in a narrow part of the country where there might be a seat you can flip or a state you can flip when we think <laughs> about just you know, how much money gets spent in a state like Wisconsin for for federal elections like that's that's pretty consequential it it helps in, in, in initiative politics but it, it it could actually hurt when voters find out like oh this smoking regulation is funded by Philip Morris like it just tanks
0: do you, do you think we have examples of that in Maine where people I mean, I think people can tell or there can be reporting on who funds these initiatives. Do you think there's sometimes a backlash once you know who whose money is behind it, Jenna?
1: So I, I the reason I'm pausing is in my current role as secretary, Um, I really see my job as making sure that voters have access to information that is objective and that the questions that are presented to them fairly capture what the proponents of those initiatives are putting forward. So I want to be careful about not weighing in on any initiatives that are on the ballot um, this November or um, in very recent history. And of course, when I think back to my days at the ACLU, the initiatives I was really paying attention to were ones that weren't dominated by big money, but really um, questions of democracy and civil rights. So I was very active. I was a founding member of the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting uh, because I believe passionately in ranked choice voting. Um, And so when I think about marriage equality or in 2005 means anti-discrimination protections, we won't discriminate. You know, we passed anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ a Plus, people um, through the ballot, and and we did so. You know, it was it was citizen led. It was it was that wasn't big money. But so I'm just gonna stop there.
2: <laughs> well, I'll,
0: I'll, maybe I'll ask Todd the question. Like we had this gut, this universal background check thing that um, was floated a few years ago. That was as, as I mentioned before, funded by Michael Bloomberg, and um, some people felt at the time it partly lost because people didn't. Want Bloomberg to tell in Maine what to do? I mean, does that happen?
2: Yeah, I think there is some of that. You mentioned the the ranked choice voting. Alaska had ranked choice voting on the ballot recently, and there was a lot of outside money that was spent on that. But I don't think that really became an issue because there wasn't a you know there wasn't a visible person who's maybe maybe not very popular. So yeah, I could I could see how there there's a Bloomberg effect. But again, if this gets to the at the end of the day, the money is. It's probably more important about who gets on the ballot most places than how voters are deciding on these things, I think. And there are a lot of really consequential things that get on the ballot without much money behind them. The, amendment floor, the ACLU's Amendment 4 in Florida that um, voters approved got 60%. Um, Was that the, the felon
0: voting one?
2: Yeah, hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of, 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 of felons were, were going to get their voting rights restored. That's a whole other story about what the state then did to implement it or not implement it. But there wasn't, those were not big money, you know, their newspaper editorials, uh, there were, there was kind of grassroots campaigning, but it's, you know, the, the cost is really getting on the ballot and then getting the question out to the public.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to take one more station break and then um, a couple more questions. So. Uh, You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Shanna Bellows, the Maine Secretary of State who administers the citizen initiative process in Maine, and Professor Todd Donovan who uh, from the Political Science Department at Western Washington University who wrote a book about citizens initiatives, an important book a couple years ago. This program was pre recorded on April 6th. We're talking about ballot initiatives. Whose questions are they? I guess I want to talk a little bit more about it because we've been talking about the money and we've been talking about who wins. Um, and I don't, you don't have to comment about this, but the active questions that are coming up on the November ballot, there is already a ton of advertising running on a couple of these questions, Shanna. So maybe since we do have time, you could just give us a little rundown about what these four questions are and what they mean?
1: So there are two questions that are in direct competition with each other, um, championed by opposite interests. Uh, The first is titled, and I'll read the proponent's title, an act to create the Pine Tree Power Company a Nonprofit Customer-Owned Utility. And the question, at least currently, is do you want to create a new quasi-governmental power company governed by an elected board to acquire and operate existing for-profit electricity transmission and distribution facilities in Maine. So what are those existing for-profit electricity transmission and distribution facilities in Maine? Well then we're talking about CMP and Versant. And so that those lines are pretty clear between people who are uh, very upset and very angry with um, the state of uh, providing um, electricity in Maine uh, very very concerned about CMP. And, and then the interests that are aligned with, with CMP and Bersin. And so those interests uh, circulated signatures for another question, and I'll read that again, an act to prohibit campaign spending by foreign governments and promote, uh, excuse me, an act to require voter approval of certain borrowing by government-controlled entities and utilities and to provide voters more information regarding that borrowing. So that question is, do you want to bar some quasi-governmental entities and all consumer-owned electric utilities from taking on more than $1 billion in debt unless they get statewide voter approval? So those, there will be a lot of money spent. I believe there already has been money spent between those two competing interests. There are two uh, questions um, both could pass. And if that happens, it'll be very interesting to see uh, how that plays out and how that's adjudicated. The other two questions, um, an act regarding automotive right to repair, may have money um, for and against that question. We don't see a competing question, as it were. And then the final question is prohibiting campaign spending by foreign governments. um, That would ban foreign governments and entities that they own control or influence for making campaign contributions or financing communications for and against candidates and ballot questions. And I mean, that kind
0: of arose out of the fact that one of these power company proposals has a foreign backer, right?
1: That certainly. Proponents were very angry about some of the foreign ownership associated um, with, the, with the power in name and their participation in a CMP corridor referendum in 2021.
0: Do you want to comment on this at all, Todd? Have you been following what's going on in Maine at all?
2: No, I won't. I, this is not what you want your guests to be saying. But I, I don't know anything about main politics. I, I know a <laughs> bit, but um, but the rival initiative thing is fascinating because we, we we've seen these in, in various states where a group gets something on the ballot and there's a strategic response with another countermeasure, and whether the rival really gets, tends to pass it or not, that it has the effect of lowering support for both measures. Some places. So it'd be interesting to see if, and if that actually happens. And again, especially like you see, I mentioned this earlier, when you get two kind of narrow economic interests competing against each other with a lot of money, oftentimes both of the proposals go down. So,
0: hmm. I don't watch that much TV, but people have been telling me that the ads for one of these questions are running incessantly now and the election's not until November. I don't know what to make of that. What about local initiatives? Because in Maine, townspeople have the right to bring initiatives to their town government, too, right, Jenna?
1: That's right. And um, one of the things that we saw in the fall were initiatives um, around the issue, of, for example, of broadband. Some towns may use the more traditional town meeting venue for ordinance changes and the like. And, and other towns uh, utilize an initiative process and voters are voting. Um, on those initiatives brought not by the select board, not brought by the council, but brought by a group of people. At the state, um, as Secretary of State, we have no jurisdiction over the municipalities. So unlike the Western states, which administer their elections by county, here in Maine, we administer our elections, of course, at the municipal level. And under the Maine constitution, we have home rule. So every municipality is an island to their own when it comes to um the laws and policy, the ordinances within within their um city or town limits uh absent any preemption by the state or federal law. And so this definitely happens in some towns more than others. Uh, and uh, there is some consternation. There is a bill uh, in the legislature that would raise the threshold uh, for signature requirements for the municipal referendums. I haven't been cl- watching that as closely because it is outside of the purview of the Secretary of State, since we really oversee the state and federal elections only.
0: Todd, there's a mix here of, and I don't have a comprehensive list, but there's a mix here of these local initiatives that have to do with some sort of good government reforms, citizen backed. Sort of progressive things. And then there's some other ones that have to do with economic interests or pushing back on economic interests, like the cruise ship fight that's happening in Bar Harbor and certainly the broadband one that you mentioned. Shanna, what do you see sort of nationwide in terms of these local initiatives, Todd?
2: There's more people live, most Americans live in a city or local municipality that has some form of direct democracy either referendum or citizens' initiatives and it varies tremendously how they might be used Um, And but you know even you see a lot of the same stuff you could see in in states the local political parties using initiatives to figure out what's you know what's going to be good for getting our folks out to the polls like we've got one out here on uh, increasing wages for folks working in large grocery stores a lot of land use measures get on the ballot at the local level across the states and that really varies i mean in california voters can like get to almost the parcel level decisions about whether a development's gonna go forward and then the developers and the and the activists will like negotiate about what projects will be put into the development, what parks and perks you might get before it goes to the ballot so they can get it to pass.
0: Is that good governance? I'm just wondering.
2: Like that's I said it's California. I didn't say it's good governance. <laughs> In other states the the localities aren't given that kind of fine grained detail over land use. Um yeah, and no, and it really can cause some problems about about what can get built where and you know, contribute to housing housing costs um, increasing or consistently increasing. But yeah, it it really varies across the country. But I think we don't realize like that you know there's probably more people that have some form of direct democracy at the local level than 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 do at the state level.
0: That's interesting. And I mean, I heard you say putting initiatives on the ballot to drive turnout. I mean, that is. That was a thing in Wisconsin just last Tuesday, right? They had a non-binding rever- referendum on the ballot there, right?
2: I'm not familiar with that, but yeah, it's. I mean, you, you you know what levers to pull sometimes to get to get folks out. It doesn't always work. I think the parties at this, not just the state level, but at the local level, have become much more sophisticated about how to. Find issues that might get their folks out because local, local politics can be pretty boring. I'm a local elected official, so I know that. But if, if, you know, if you get an issue that mobilizes folks who you have more opportunity to make a difference at the local level, at least because turnout would generally be so low, particularly if it's right. going to be an odd year election out of sync with, you know, more high profile elections, get a minimum wage uh, uh, initiative on or, or a criminal justice reform initiative on or, or, you know, an anti-tax initiative, but the the least likely voters, the younger, like more apartisan voters might be the ones that you can find an issue at the local level. And you're really affecting turnout instead of a couple of percent at the state level with initiative. um, There's the prospect for more of a substantial increment of vote turnout increase
0: at the local level, especially among young voters. Did I I hear you say that? right? Yeah, because I mean, the.
2: There's just generally lower turnout. So the people you're going to be mobilizing tend to be um, the less partisan, younger, less engaged voters that don't care about a county commission or a local city council. But there might be an issue that gets them interested and engaged and even out there petitioning at the same time. Then, you know, that's going to help one slate a candidate that might be more aligned with those folks values. So Mm -hmm. I I think we're, we're seeing a lot more of that, at least in the Northwest.
0: That's interesting. So, to this question, do you think the initiative process deflects or enhances partisan agendas?
2: I think overall, it's more independent of partisan agendas. As much as, like, I mean, I've maybe said too much about how parties are using these. The vast majority of stuff that gets on there is probably not coming from the parties, particularly the state, because the parties already have some traction in the legislature. The majority party, in particular. Um, Whereas a lot of the groups that can't get a hearing in a state legislature, they're going to go the initiative route. So the the parties have learned to adapt to it and they've learned to use it to their advantage at at times. But I think the bigger picture is it's whether you're talking citizen activist groups, well-funded economic groups, um, those folks who can't get traction and get a bill through the legislature are the ones that are probably getting the most stuff or going, trying to get stuff on the ballot most frequently.
0: So Shannon, without putting you on the spot, because you've been on both sides—on the initiative side and on the representative government side—and I guess there's three th- three sides, because you've been a representative and and a senator, and now you're in the administrative role. Like, do you think Maine has the balance right between representative democracy
1: and direct democracy? I do. I mean, I think Maine does so many things well. I I could brag on Maine for a whole hour, but seriously, I I think that with representative government, and I was in the Senate, I wasn't in the in the House, but um, I think you know our practice of clean elections, uh, thank you to a citizen referendum from a, for establishing clean elections in Maine, uh, has resulted in real diversity uh, in the legislature. Um, when I reflect on my own experience being able to run for office uh, without being personally wealthy, uh, when I think about our Speaker of the House, the youngest Speaker of the House in the country at the time, the first out gay speaker in Maine, you know, son of a single mom, um, also like me, grew up in poverty. And so, and that's just, and our Senate president, former logger, just so cool um, to have that level of accessibility and representation. But from a process perspective, the idea that we have both the Citizens Initiative process, whereby you really can band together, show up on election day, gather signatures so that you could be on the ballot the following election year if you so Choose if you have that energy and organization and enthusiasm, and if the voters respond positively to your idea. Or you can contact your local representative, have them introduce a bill, and know that it will have a hearing and that it will have that opportunity for conversation the legislature. So I think we do things really well. I would like to see some changes to our initiative process in terms of actual implementation. Now that I'm in the role of Secretary of State and I see Uh, Maine has a very manual process of review of those signatures. We're very deliberative at the state office and our 12 state election officials um, verifying the signatures, tens of thousands of signatures on multiple referendum uh, in a short period of time. So we had two of those four referendum questions came in the week before the November 2022 election. So we were administering an election and then recounts and the ranked choice voting tabulation while in this 30-day deadline, trying to verify all of those petitions. That meant <laughs> a lot of overtime, 35 straight days with no days off for most of my elections team. That that really put a lot of stress on our system. So I'd love to see a few modest reforms uh, to give the Secretary of State uh, Office a little bit more time to do that signature verification without changing the fundamental timeline for when things can go on the ballot and without interfering with the citizen democracy. But all in all, I think our initiative process is really strong. I, um, having come from that community of people really engaged in civil rights, I've seen the power of citizens initiatives to move me forward for really, with really positive results.
0: That's great. Um, Todd, take a minute and sum up from your perspective.
2: I think you, you can really learn looking across the states where direct democracy enhances and improves the way government works and democracy. And I think states like Maine and, and Washington state, where you have the indirect initiative process, which can loop the legislature in, um, where we, you know, we have a not full time legislature that I think is much more responsive to to folks and has more frequent turnover who's, who's in the legislature those in combination with the fact that the initiatives are not constitutional so they can send signals they can set policy the legislature can change them i think all that that all interacts to to, to good ends i think if you look at california where i grew up um where i am right now actually the the constitutional initiative process the full-time legislature Combined with legislative term limits, so you, you, you've got um, a legislature that doesn't get a lot of institutional memory. You've got, um, and that's fairly recent. Um, these initiatives that might go back decades that change and, and complicate the tax codes um, that you have to then work with the voters to try to get them to change. Um, it's it's more dysfunctional, and I don't I don't think that direct democracy has been complementing. Um, the way positively complimenting the way government's working in California. So, you know, there are some states that strike the balance well. And I I think Maine sounds fantastic, but it actually (laughs) sounds sounds a lot like Washington. Um, All right.
0: Well, we'll call that the show for today. Thank you both very much to our guests, Jenna Bellows, Main Secretary of State, and Todd Donovan, Professor of Political Science at Western Washington University. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with weru streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WE. Please put democracy form in the subject line. The League website is lwvme.org. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series, subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Since we recorded this show last April, a total of eight questions have made it to the November 7th ballot. There are the four citizen initiatives that Secretary Bell has named, along with four constitutional amendments proposed by the legislature to be ratified by the people. Briefly, the eight questions will appear in this order. Question 1. An initiative to require voter approval of certain borrowing by government controlled entities and utilities. Question two, an initiative to prohibit campaign spending by foreign governments. Question three, an initiative to create the Pine Tree Power Company. Question four, an initiative regarding automotive right to repair. Question five, an amendment to the main constitution regarding judicial review of written petitions. Question six, An amendment to the Maine Constitution to require all provisions of the Constitution to be included in the official printing, including Wabanaki treaty obligations. Question seven, an amendment to the Maine Constitution to align the proceedings for circulating written petitions with federal law. And question eight, an amendment to the Constitution of Maine to allow persons under
1: guardianship for mental illness to be voters.